Everybody's finding their seats. Let me just remind you about the um, announcements. Two weeks from Saturday, we have our uh, annual picnic. And I don't know about you all, but I'm real excited because this time next week, we're supposed to have a cool front. And then before the weekend's over, we're going to have another colder front and drop the temperatures down into, I mean, lows in the morning down into the mid-50s. So um, that's just setting things up to where we, it might be perfect weather for. But who knows? We know what our record is. So that's the main announcement is be prepared for that. And then also, if you have not received email announcements uh, uh, and you want to get them, look in the bulletin, and there are instructions there. And there's a new bulletin that's out because we've entered into a new month. So you can take a look at that and, and get caught up. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we begin this evening, we need to have a few moments of silent prayer so we can get all the garbage and clutter out of our minds. We can confess any sin that we need to confess so that we can recover our ongoing fellowship with the Lord. We need to confess sin, which means simply to admit or acknowledge our sin, and instantly we are uh, forgiven and cleansed of all unrighteousness. So after a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful so much for the opportunity to come together this evening and just to be refreshed by looking at your word, studying your word, being challenged to truly trust you, radically trust you, depend upon you in every area of our life, understanding that your grace is sufficient, that the cross is sufficient, and that the scripture is sufficient for whatever situation we face in life. We can have stability, we can have joy. We can have happiness even in the midst of the most dire of circumstances. And Father, we need to come to understand that we need to trust not in modern techniques or gimmicks or uh, any other tool that is not your word, and that we need to come to understand that we must trust only in your word just as we trust only in Christ for our salvation. Now, Father, we pray that you'd help us, strengthen us, encourage us, as we study tonight, in Christ's name, amen. 
All right, well, before we get started, I want to talk about a contemporary event because it is such a beautiful example of some things that I've been teaching, especially on Tuesday night in Second Samuel, but it did, the timing wasn't right for me to do it Tuesday night, but it's hot off the press tonight, so we're going to talk about it tonight. And some of you may, I'm going to show a couple of videos, some of you may have seen parts of these videos in the news, but you may not have seen all of the videos because uh, it gets into some really good stuff that the news media usually doesn't want to uh, want to present. So we're going to talk about that. It has to do with this trial that uh, ended yesterday of a former police officer, policewoman named Amber Geiger. And if you don't know the story, about a year and a half ago, she came home allegedly after a long day. She was riding up in an elevator to the floor in her high rise where she lived and got off on the wrong floor. Now, so far, I can really understand that because there's so many times when I've been at conferences, been at pre-trib, where I'm looking at my phone or talking to somebody, you punch the button for 11 or 12, and the elevator stops at 8 or 9, and you think you're there, and you get off the elevator, and I've done this I don't know how many times. Walk to a room, you run your key through the thing, nothing happens, and you look at the room number and realize you're at the wrong place. Well, that's what she claimed happened, and so she got off the elevator. She saw the door of what she thought was her apartment open. She went to the door, uh, went in. She saw a black man inside the apartment. She thought she was in danger. She pulled a weapon and killed him, and that's her story. The trial ended. I'm, I'm not sure when the trial itself ended, two or three days ago, and she was found guilty. The, the uh jury only had two options, manslaughter and first-degree murder. They, didn't feel, they felt like it was more egregious than manslaughter, so they found her guilty of murder. In the sentencing phase, the judge gave her a sentence of 10 years, which is fitting for a manslaughter type of charge. Of course, the circus was going on outside of the building. By the circus, I mean all of the groups that are beholden to social justice, which is not really justice at all. It is just another word for imposing Marxism on everybody. Social justice movement, Marxism, are just pure evil. And one of the things that you, you see, if you pay attention, is that they're all ruled by a set of standards to which they are extremely legalistic and self-righteous. A term that is often used, and I've thought about this a while because I really wasn't sure exactly what it described, and I bet that's true for most of you, and that is the term virtue signaling. How many of y'all can give me a quick definition of virtue signaling? That's a rhetorical question. Can you give me a biblical example of virtue signaling? Time's up. The Pharisees. They want to make sure everybody sees how much they give, how many times they go to the temple, how many times they pray. All Everything has to be done for show because they want everybody to see how virtuous and righteous they are. But as Jesus points out in the Sermon on the Mount, you're to pray in private, you're to give in private. Everything is to be done between you and the Lord and not to signal your righteousness to everybody. 
So what's the problem with the Pharisees' virtue signaling? It, virtue signaling is always motivated by self-righteousness. And self-righteousness is the fruit of the root of arrogance. You saw this same thing if you're a history buff in the 1850s. The arrogance in the North and the arrogance in the South led to complete polarization motivated by self-righteousness. So you have this outside group that's being funded by George Soros and other extremely leftist organizations just to create chaos and stir up trouble. But what went on in the courtroom was absolutely beautiful. It was one of the greatest testimony, public testimonies that's spontaneous that I have ever seen. And it should challenge each and every one of us in our understanding of grace and compassion. And it really irritated the people outside because self-righteousness doesn't just demand a just penalty. It wants everything. There's no forgiveness because there's no grace and arrogance. And what went on inside the courtroom was an example, a biblical example of justice and grace. True. So I'm going to show these videos. Let me see. I'm going to pull up the first one. I think I have to get out of my presentation here. Then I can switch over. There we go. This, the black man here's name is um, Brant Jean. He is the younger brother of the man who was killed. The man who was killed was named Botham Jean. And by all accounts, he was a solid believer. He sang in his church choir. And from the example and things that his family says, they understood the word of God and the Christian life. And they were great, great examples. And so he is hugging. This is at the end, really at the end, the way it tubes up. Uh, this is the woman who killed his brother. And you've probably seen this much or a little bit more if you've watched the news. So we're going to see if the audio is actually working. Okay, it should work, Eddie. Let's see. what you've or how much you've taken from us I think you know that but I just he's giving the family response where at the end just before sentencing okay just so you get the context where the family can address the um, the woman I hope you go to God with all what, all the guilt, all the things, the bad things you may have done in the past. Each and every one of us may have done something that we're not supposed to do. If you truly are sorry, I know I can speak for myself. I, I forgive you, and. I know if you go to God and ask Him, He will forgive you. And I don't think anyone could say it 
Again, I'm speaking for myself, not even bad for my family. But I love you just like anyone else. And I'm not going to say I hope you rot and die just like my brother did, but I see, I, I personally want the best for you. And I, I wasn't going to ever say this in front of my family or anyone, but I don't even want you to go to jail. I want the best for you. Because I know that's what that's exactly what both of them would want you to do. And the best would be give your life to Christ. I'm not gonna say anything else. I think giving your life to Christ would be the best thing that both of them would want you to do. Again, I love you as a person. And I don't wish anything bad on you. I don't know if this is possible, but can, can I give her a hug, please? Please? Yes. The judge didn't answer because she was crying. Now that scene preceded the um, preceded the giving of the sentence, and so she's sentenced. And I found this other video, which is from KHOU here, and it's got a narrator because there wasn't a mic on the judge. After the sentencing, the judge left the bench. Now what that means is she's no longer functioning as a judge. She, as her role as a judge, she passed the sentence. Then she steps off the bench, and now she's a person. And she's going to personally give a gift to uh, the defendant. Emotional from watching Brant hugging Amber Geiger, went to the family and spoke to them and offered them words of encouragement just out of earshot of the reporters nearby. The judge then turned and went to Amber Geiger herself. She bent down and spoke to her in her ear. We couldn't hear what she was saying at first. But then the judge walked away, went back into her chambers, and returned less than a minute later with a small book in her hand. We quickly realized that it was a copy of the Bible. Yeah. I have three, four more. This is the one I 
Then the judge and Amber hug each other. Amber tells something in the judge's ear that prompts the judge to say, Ma'am, it's not because I'm good, it's because I believe in Christ. The judge continues, I'm not so good. You haven't done so much that you can't be forgiven. The judge continues, You did something bad in one moment in time. What you do now matters. Then the judge urges Amber to take the Bible with her as the deputies escort her back to the holding cell for prisoners. At this point, lawyers and onlookers were all tearing up, getting emotional. I was tearing up. No one really could understand what was going on. It ain't gonna be no but it was in stark contrast to the chanting going on outside. I'd say that was a pretty impactful victim impact statement. That is just a tremendous example. Two Christians who give a tremendous testimony. They have, in the case of the younger brother, he's the one who has been wronged. He's had the life of his brother taken from him, stolen from him, and yet he responds in love. He responds in giving the gospel, and he responds in forgiveness. Then, on, then you have this situation with the judge who takes advantage of this as a, as a tremendous uh, initiation, and she goes and gets her Bible, brings it out. John 3.16 was underlined, and she points that out to the defendant that this is what you need. This is what you need to start, and this is where your, the rest of your life is going to focus. And so it'll be interesting to see if Amber responds to the gospel. And she's had this great example of forgiveness. But we live in a nation today that is so divided and there's so much anger and hate and cry for a very false view of justice. And here we have a, a just an unbelievable example of biblical justice. A just penalty was assessed on the, on, on the criminal that she's got 10 years in prison. And that dealt with the crime and paying for the crime. But then both the defendant, I mean both the brother of the victim and the judge made it clear to the defendant that the other thing that has to take place is there has to be forgiveness from God. Those are two separate issues. And you, I've heard several things. There's a certain amount of criticism of the judge that she shouldn't have done this. And it's a complete failure of the part of the unbeliever and the radical leftist to distinguish between the official position of, of Tammy Kemp as the judge. And once she fulfilled her responsibility as the judge in, in setting the sentence, then she comes down, the trial is over, and she it personally goes to the family of the victim and then to the defendant and gives her the gospel and gives her her own Bible. She said, I've got many more at home. So this is just a tremendous example to teach what I talk about all the time. It's grace orientation. It's not holding a grudge. It's not holding anything against somebody. It's not responding in anger and hatred and bitterness. 
There's grace orientation there, and there's impersonal love. He, he, the, the defendant's brother, uh, Brant, did not know, doesn't know her. He can't say, I love you personally, because he doesn't know her. But it's that biblical value that we talk about, that's impersonal love or unconditional love that is based on an understanding of the fact that Christ died for us even when we were at enmity with God. It's just a tremendous example. I've never seen anything like that, and I don't think anybody else has either. And this is just a great testimony to this nation. And hopefully there are a few people who will wake up and listen, but I think, unfortunately, that it's more of a statement that condemns where we are as a nation rather than challenges us to step forward and go to a higher level. Okay, let's open our Bibles. To, uh, we'll start off at Second Peter, but then we're going to go into the Old Testament. So if you want to jump the gun there, you can, and you can open your Bibles to Exodus, uh, Exodus chapter 33. So just in, by way of review for anyone who hasn't heard previous lessons, what we're looking at in Second Peter is the prelude that covers, begins in chapter 1, verse 2, that goes down to about verse 20, and that's the introduction to this epistle. The focus in this epistle is really warning against false teachers and false teaching. And one of the greatest false teachings today is the teaching of psychology, teaching of the need for sociology, teaching in relation to the sciences in terms of evolutionary theory, all of which are built on a false view of truth. They try to elevate empir their empirical truth to the level of God's revealed truth. And there's always problems with the authority of Scripture in any kind of false system of theology. So what Peter tells his readers is that they can face anything in life because they're backed by the omnipotence of God. And God's already given us everything that pertains to life, that is physical life. God will supply everything we need logistically, uh, and spiritually for us to fulfill his uh, mission in our life, and it's through the knowledge of God. But that knowledge of God comes to us through the promises that are revealed in his word. So it's always a Bible-based thing. It's not apart from Scripture. So we go to the Scripture, and God teaches us in the Scripture, gives us promises, and we rely on those promises in order to get through whatever situation or set of circumstances we may find ourselves. And it is the Bible that enables us to escape the corruption that is in the world through lust. In other words, the basic problem is sin. And as I pointed out before, in Genesis chapter 4, we have a basic problem with Cain. Cain is arrogant. He has redefined what God wants in terms of a sacrifice, when God rejects his sacrifice and accepts his brother Abel's sacrifice, then the Bible says his face was fallen. This is an idiom for depression. So the cure for depression isn't a pill. It isn't going to a psychiatrist. The cure for depression is to get right with God and get right with his word and to not let sin take control because this is exactly what God warned Cain about. He said, sin is crouching at the door, but you need to control it. 
That is personal responsibility. That is the role of the first divine institution. We have to make a choice. And so even though the book wasn't that good, the title was great in Minrith and Meyer's book, Happiness is a Choice. You have to make a choice as to whether or not you are going to trust in God and let God deal with your situation or whether you're going to try to handle it uh, in some other way. So this is where we started. We got into the biblical doctrine of the sufficiency of God. We looked at, uh, also looked at what the Bible says about truth, that God's truth is higher than any other truth and is the basis for interpreting all other truth. That is truth that we think we've gotten right that comes from empiricism or rationalism or uh, something of that nature. Last time, we started looking at biblical examples of how these great Old Testament heroes who are listed in uh, Hebrews chapter 11 as heroes of the faith because they believed God and they trusted in him and they were sustained by the sufficiency of God's grace. And so we looked first and foremost at Noah, and Noah went through 120 years of rejection. He went through 120 years where he probably had no convert, he, you know, this is a great example that you people often look at their church and they say, oh, we're losing our numbers. People are leaving. Well, at least there's somebody there. Noah didn't have anybody there. And he did everything right and nobody came. And see, we live in a pragmatic world and one sign of false teachers is that they measure success by how much money and how many people are involved in their ministry. That has nothing to do with you as a pastor. That has everything to do with God. You can do everything right, and for whatever reason, God is not bringing people or the ministry is not expanding. You can go out and you can create all kinds of programs and manipulations, and you can get a lot of people there, and you can bring in a lot of money. And I was ordained by Dr. Harry Leaf at Tomball Bible Church, And one of the things that Harry told me as we were spending a lot of time together leading up to that event, he said, Robbie, always remember that anybody who knows anything about business can build a big organization, but that doesn't mean the Holy Spirit has anything to do with it. So just because you have numbers doesn't mean God's doing anything. Doesn't mean that he's not either. But that's not the criteria. The criteria is in 1 Corinthians 4.4, 4, and that is faithfulness, that God uh, looks to us to be faithful with what we've been given and faithful with, with our gift. So Noah was faithful, but he had a problem. There was an evil worldwide rejection of God. The intent of the hearts of man was evil continually, Scripture says in Ephesians 6.5. Plus, there's this demonic invasion that occurred with the sons of God, a term for the uh, fallen angels who came down and transformed their bodies into physical material bodies with material functions so that they took uh, human women to be their wives. And they engaged in sexual intercourse and gave birth to a half-breed offspring. That was the focus was to destroy the genetic purity of the human race. So this is a horrible situation, and Noah and his family are in the minority. And even then, people said, well, everybody else is right. And when they said everybody else, they met everybody else. And they all had the same view, and that was that Noah was wrong. 
So they had to stand their ground for 120 years. But God's grace was sufficient for them. And so God, uh, Scripture says, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And Hebrews 11 says, By faith Noah, being divinely warned of things not yet seen, moved with godly fear. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. He prepared an ark according to God's direction. See, God's word was sufficient to tell him what was going to happen, how he would survive, gave him complete detailed instructions on how to build the ark, and then God brought the animals to him, closed the door, sealed it up, and protected him during the year that they were floating on the water. God's grace was sufficient for Noah. I don't think any of us have a problem, that any problems that are as big as the ones that Noah faced. If God's grace was sufficient for him, God's grace is sufficient for us. And then the next example I'm going to use is Moses. And for Moses, we're going to turn to Exodus chapter 33. And I just want to point out a few things, but to get the thrust of this, we have to get a little context in Exodus. So I said 33. I meant, um, yes, I did. I meant Exodus. The core verse is Exodus 33, 12, but we'll look at some previous context. So in Exodus chapter 20, God reveals the prelude to the law. Exodus chapter 20 is the Ten Commandments. That's the prelude. That's the summary of the the principles that are embedded in the individual statutes and ordinances that are going to be revealed in chapters 21 to 23. Now, in 2314, there's a shift from the civil ordinances to some religious ritual ordinances and the feast days. Then, just six verses later in 2320, there's a shift where God tells Moses that he will be guided by the angel of Yahweh and by his power. So key in on revelation in the, all of these different instances with these, the guys I'm talking about and others, there's two things to look for. What is God revealing to them? What's the promise? And what's the power? That's what Peter's talking about, that we have God's power and we have God's promise. And so in 23.20, he says that the angel of the Lord is going to guide them on their way to the promised land and that they will be protected by his power. And so we come to Exodus 23.23, and this is what God promised. For my angel, that's the angel of Yahweh, who is the second person of the Trinity. This is the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ. For my angel will go before you and bring you into the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. And what does he promise? He's saying, I'm going to take you into the land I promised you, the land of Canaan, and I will cut them off. He doesn't say, you're going to do it. I'm going to do it. Now, he's going to give instructions later on, but it's God who gives the victory. In verse 27, he then says three things. He says, I, first, I will send my fear before you. In other words, what's going to happen is the Canaanites have heard about everything that I did in the ten plagues in Egypt, and they are scared to death. They are scared that you're going to come and do the same things to them. And we learn that because of the response of Rahab when the spies came in. They said everyone in Jericho was scared of what was going to happen. And the third, second thing he says is, I will cause confusion. doesn't matter how mighty their armies are. 
I, God says, I will confuse them so they will make the wrong decisions. That may be happening with the Democrats in their attempt to impeach Trump right now. Because I think, like a, even a lot of Democrats think, that this is going to blow up in their face. I will cause confusion. And then the third thing he says, I will make all your enemies turn their backs to you. Now, when you turn your back to somebody attacking you, what are you doing? You're running away. Okay, so the God says, that's what I'm going to cause to happen. And we saw, see examples of that in the book of, of Judges. And then if we skip down just a little bit uh, to verses, uh, that was 27, to verses 28, 29, and 30, then God says, I will send hornets before you. Oh, that's going to be pleasant. He's using that metaphorically, but he, he indicates that it is going to cause the enemy to run. If you were standing in a crowd and somebody sent hornets into the crowd, what would you do? You would run scared. It's a very strong visual image. I will send hornets before you, which will drive out the Hivite, the Canaanite, and the Hittite from before you. In verse 29, he says, but it's not going to happen fast. I will not drive them out from before you in one year. It's going to take time. Why? Because if they all leave the land, then who's going to be there? You have, it takes time to set up all the administration, all the organization to take over the farms, and to uh, keep everything going. Otherwise, it would just be a total collapse, which is what he describes in the next verse. Little by little, I will drive them out from before you until you have increased and you inherit the land. He's just not going to do it all at once. Now, in chapter 24, God then called for Moses to come up on the mountain and to bring Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu. Nadab and Abihu were two of his sons on the mountain to worship. They went up so far, and then God said they had to stop, and Moses alone was allowed to come all the way up to the Lord, and that is when the Lord reveals uh, the rest of the Torah to him. And when he returns, he read the book of the covenant to all the people, and then he now sanctifies them they're already saved, and he is going to sanctify them ritually by sprinkling blood on them. And so this is a time of worship, and we studied this passage in the, in the worship series. Then a second time, um, Moses goes up on the mountain. He takes Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, plus the 70 elders of Israel. And they get so close that they can see what they describe as the pavement under the throne of God. They're looking up. God is above that. Moses is allowed to go all the way up. While Moses is up there receiving all of the law, the people get restless, and they convince Aaron to melt down all of the gold and jewelry and everything that they brought out of Egypt and to make a golden calf, and they would worship it. Now, it isn't pure idolatry, but they're calling the golden calf Yahweh. This is the God, Aaron says. This is the God who brought you out of Egypt. So it is idolatry, but it is not full-bore idolatry. They're just creating a, an idol of, of Yahweh. So they have the whole golden calf instant. Moses comes down. He hears the sound of, uh, of the people having a big party. They're having an orgy, and he gets really angry, throws the two tablets down and breaks them, 
Then he comes down and he has Aaron melt down and grind up the golden calf and he makes the instigators drink it all. And there's several thousand, 20 or 30,000 that are killed at that particular time. All the Levites rally to Moses' cause. He's a member of the tribe of Levi. And then there, there is a cleansing by blood. There's death. And then it, that ends. And when that ends, this is what brings us to chapter 33. Chapter 32 is the whole incident of the golden calf. Now, in the revelation that God has given them of the Torah already, he has fully informed Israel that he's going to give them the victory in Canaan. But they are expected to behave a certain way. God promised that he would defeat their enemies completely and that they were to worship him and serve him alone. They have a background for this in that they have already seen God's power. Okay, so they're getting a promise from God, but it's based on the demonstration of God's power in the plagues of Egypt. So you have the ten plagues ending with the death of the firstborn. Then they are released to leave Egypt, and they go through the Dead Sea, and God protects them. He splits the Dead Sea. They cross on dry ground. Then when the Egyptian troops come behind him and get out in the middle of the Dead Sea, God releases the waters and they're all killed. So they have an example of that power. Then when you get into Exodus 33, again God reiterates his basic promise. I will send my angel before you and I will drive out the Canaanite and the Amorite and the Hittite and the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Jebusite. And he gives them a command, go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, for I will not go up in your midst, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. God's a realist. They have a problem. They're sinners, and they easily fall into sin. Now, look at Moses, the description in Hebrews of Moses. Moses is trusting in God completely. He's not trusting in anything else. He's not trusting in the armies of the Egyptians. He's not trusting in any technology. He's trusting completely in the Lord. In verse 24 of Hebrews 11, we read, By faith Moses, when he became of age... So he grew up in the household of Pharaoh, and this comes up when he's about 40 years of age, maybe a little earlier... And he realizes that he is a Jew of Jewish descent. And rather than being identified with the Egyptians, he makes his choice. He wants to be identified with the people of God. He knows the story, uh, the predictions of a redeemer that will come and rescue them from slavery. He realizes that might be him. At first, he tries to do it his own way by killing one of the Egyptians. And then God has to go and teach him what it means to trust him. And so he spends 40 years going through basic, basic uh, Old Testament spiritual growth in Midian. But the writer of Hebrews summarizes that, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. And they had some very pleasurable sin going on in Egypt. And there's a lot of pleasurable sin that we get involved in. 
we indulge our emotions, we indulge our anger, we indulge in negative emotions and passions, and we indulge uh, probably at the food table too much. Some people indulge in alcohol too much or drugs or whatever else it may be. But here's the choice. Are we going to recognize that God the Creator has called us for a specific purpose and give our complete loyalty to Him? Or are we going to constantly give Him our loyalty and turn around and rebel and go back and forth? So Moses recognized that he had a choice. It's either follow God or go back to being an Egyptian. So he realized that it was better to experience the reproach of Christ. And we haven't experienced that much in our nation, but we are seeing evidence of the rise of this more and more and the hostility in our culture to people who are Christians. Now, we live in the Bible Belt, and there's still uh, enough of the residual of that in Texas to where that isn't much of a problem. But if you go to California, you go to Washington State, you go to Oregon, you go to the Northeast in New England, uh, other states along the East Coast, and you stand up as a Christian, then you're in trouble. And one of the things we have to do is quit being intimidated as Christians. But we have to make sure that our response is in love, and our response is in kindness, and it's not in reaction and anger and hatred for those who oppose us. Because we never know if they're going to be like the Apostle Paul and on the basis of our witness turn from being spiritually dead to trusting in Christ. So we have to recognize that this is the decision for us, like Moses. Are we going to handle being reproached, being anathematized, being persecuted, being rejected all the time by the people who were our friends, the people who were our family. That's what Moses dealt with. Rejection is a major problem people have in life. They're scared to death of rejection. They always want to do things to gain approval instead sometimes of doing that which is right. And so what happens is we have to look to the sufficiency of Christ, recognize what our mission is as believers, and relax and go about it and not feel threatened, not feel that we need to react in anger or resentment, but that we need to be grace-oriented to those who oppose us. We need to demonstrate the love of Christ to those who are obnoxious to him. So Moses esteemed the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he looked to the reward. He is looking to the end game. He's living his life in light of eternity, and he's going to fulfill the mission. So we go back to uh, Exodus 33.12. So Moses here is having a good confrontation with God in a good sense. And so he's trying to lay out his case before the Lord. He's living in a situation where the people have rejected. They have been forgiven. They have been accepted by God, and now it's a different situation. And God is telling him that he needs to take them and go to the land. So he's going to uh, clarify some things here. And so in verse 12, 
we read, Then Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, Bring up this people. That's his mission, to take the people to the land. But you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found grace in my sight. That's the foundation. See, grace is what provides us with everything we need to accomplish the mission. And so he recognizes that God in his grace is providing for him. The issue is, he go- is, is he going to trust in the sufficiency of God's grace? And so he prays on that basis. God, you said, I found grace in your sight. Remember Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And now he says, uh, show me now. He said, Lord, if, if I have found grace in your sight, show me now your way that I may know you and that I may find grace in your sight and consider that this nation is your people. And so God responded to him and said, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. Then Moses said, Well, if your presence does, does not go, us, go with us, do not bring us up from here. And so he lays out uh, the situation, and what takes place then is that God is going to give Moses uh, a glimpse of who he is, but he makes a promise to him. And so the Lord said to Moses, I will also do this thing that you have spoken, for you have found grace in my sight, and I know you by name. When he says, I'll also do this thing you have spoken, he's saying, I'm going to fulfill the promise and give you everything you need. So Moses has been completely provided for by God out of his grace. That was his test. His test was to figure out if God would really sustain him. And he went through so many tests. He was rejected. His authority was rejected, challenged, questioned by his brother and his sister. Everybody turned against him at one point or another. But Moses stood his ground. Moses was considered the most humble man in the Old Testament. Humility is the opposite of arrogance. In humility, he was dependent upon God to sustain him, and he didn't look to approval from people. He didn't look to recognition from people. Frankly, he didn't care, not in a callous way, but he was concerned with God's approval rather than the approval of of the people. So that takes us through through Moses. The next example I want to go to is Job. Now I've skipped over some that we could talk about. We have Elijah. Elijah was a great figure. Elijah, as James writes in James 5, Elijah was a man of like nature as we are. He was just a man like the rest of us. And he prayed. That's the example that's used there in in James 5. He prayed that it wouldn't rain for three and a half years. He persevered. That's the theme in James. He endured. He, no matter how tough it got, no matter how dry it got, no matter how much food they ran out of, he always trusted God. God supplied food for him. God supplied water for him. Then when the water in the uh, Brook Kareth was going to run out. God shifted his location, and he went with the widow of Zarephath, and there 
God provided every day there was going to be just enough meal, just enough flour, just enough oil to get them through a day. And then the next day they'd wake up and there was flour and oil again. God sustained them day in, day out. We all have a problem. We want God to give us six months worth or a full three decades for our retirement full and not trust one day at a time. God's grace is always going to be sufficient for us. It is always going to take care of us to carry out the mission he wants. You say, well, what if I run out of everything and I get, get thrown out on the streets as a homeless person? Well, maybe God's will is for you to have a ministry to the homeless people, and he has to get you there. Now, that's not a normal situation, but God takes us where he wants us. You get a disease. You have to go in the hospital. One of the first things I think of is, well, I wonder who at the hospital needs to hear the gospel. I always thought about that as Gene Brown was nearing the end and he would go in the hospital for various things. Gene witnessed to everybody. And the first thing you'd think of was, wonder who's going to need, going to hear the gospel and get saved this week. So we have to look at things uh, differently from our personal priorities and pleasures. Elijah then had another great opportunity to see the power of God. And he confronted the priests of Baal and the priests of the Asherah and gave them a little challenge and uh, that they built up a, a sacrifice and they called upon Baal all day and all afternoon to come down and, and to uh, uh, send lightning because he's the storm god to send lightning to uh, burn up the sacrifice. And they did everything. They cut themselves. They jumped around. They did everything. And Elijah taunted them. Somebody would say, oh, that's not Christian. God taunts people a lot. I think it's pretty close to God-like in the right situation. And he would say, well, maybe Baal's off on a journey. Maybe he's in the restroom. You know, maybe he went out to the latrine. And finally, at the end of the afternoon, they gave up. They were exhausted. And he built a huge altar, huge fire, soaked it in water, put the animals on it, and then just simply prayed to God to accept the sacrifice. And God sent a bolt of lightning that, according to Jewish legend, could be seen from anywhere in the land of Israel. It lit up the sky and immediately incinerated the entire altar. Stones, wood, animal, water, everything was gone. Then he gets a threat from Jezebel. Then he goes from being a spiritual hero to being a self-absorbed uh, failure, having his own little pity party, and he starts running and ran as far away as he could all the way down to Mount Sinai. And then God came to him because God always meets us wherever we are in our successes or in our failures. And God dealt with Elijah and eventually promoted him to heaven not long after that. So Job, I mean, uh, Elijah, Elijah is another great example of God being sufficient and caring for him in the way that he needed to in his, in his ministry. God sustains us. So we come to Job. Job is... A uh, tremendous story. Here's a picture of Job there and his three so-called friends, with friends like that, who needs enemies. 
And he is, at this point, trying to figure out why God let all these things happen to him. And that's pretty much a fruitless pursuit. Don't get involved in that. It'll eventually lead to spiritual failure and self-absorption and self-pity because we don't know. We'll never figure it out this side of eternity why God allows us to go through uh, diseases, financial failure, business failure, uh, family collapse, death, disease, famine, uh, being a victim of a storm and flood. It's all opportunities to be a witness for the Lord because we never understood, we never understand exactly what. The issue we learn all through this is to understand the promise of God, to understand the provision of God, that it will always sustain us, and not to give up. We are to persevere. The Greek word there in James is hupomone, which means to endure and to trust God and have joy at the same time. So when we start the book of Job, we learn about poor old Job, and Job loses everything in two different rounds. Job has no idea that there's someone behind all this and that he's being tested by Satan. We know it because God opens the, opens the curtains for us so that we can see what's going on behind the scene, but Job didn't know that. All he knows is that one day he is sitting there and a messenger comes running in, panting out of breath, and tells him that his children, his adult children, were uh, having a party and that all of a sudden a tremendous wind came up and uh, hit the roof of the house and it collapsed on them and every one of them died. So he's now lost all of his children. And then, just as that guy finishes, another messenger comes running in in verse uh, 15 and says that the Sabaean raiders, which was a gang, basically a gang of robbers that inhabited the Middle East, and uh, rustlers, and they rustled all of his oxen and donkeys and killed the men guarding them, stole everything, killed all the men except for one guy who is the messenger. Then in verse 16, another messenger runs in, and he says that this massive uh, fire from heaven has come down and burned up all of his sheep and the shepherds. So he's lost all of those men, and that's going to impact all their families. And he's lost all of, his, all of his sheep. So he's lost all of his cattle. He's lost his donkeys. He's lost his sheep. And he's lost all of the attendants that were taking care of them. And then there's a raiding party of Chaldeans who came in and stole all of his camels and killed all the men who were guarding them except for one. So he's lost his wealth. He's the wealthiest man. He's like Bill Gates. One minute he's got everything, owns everything, the richest man in the world. The next minute he's got nothing. His wealth, his family, his possessions, everything gone. But he won't curse God. And then there's a second round instigated again by Satan. This time God allows him to take his health. And he, so he comes under... Uh, these horrible uh, boils and cancerous uh, sores on his body, and they itch like crazy, and he's got these terrible infections and no antibiotics, and he's just in absolute physical misery. And then his friends come along and start telling him in one way or another that it's all his fault. 
that he's made a lot of bad decisions, got some hidden sin, whatever it is, and he protests his innocence, and he wants to, he wants to have his day in court before God. Eventually, by the end of the book, God shows up, and God begins to ask him a whole lot of questions, like, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Where were you when I made this animal or that animal? Where were you when I created the uh, polar caps and the ice? And, and as he asks question after question, it just exposes Job's ignorance. That, and God's point is, if I explain to you what was going on, you don't have the capacity to understand it. All you need to do is trust in me. And early on in the book, Job says, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. No matter what happens, I'm going to exclusively trust in God to sustain me, and I'm not going to curse God. I'm not going to bail out on him because he's going to sustain me. And that was Job's mentality. So when you get to the New Testament, the writer of James says, Indeed, we count them blessed who endure. That is, these Old Testament examples. You have heard of the perseverance of Job and seen the end intended by the Lord, that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. Once again, God's grace is what sustained him. It's a tremendous example of how God's grace is sufficient. I've got two more examples from the Old Testament just some quick examples. We'll wait till next time to look at the two New Testament examples. But one we're very familiar with, and that's David. Think about David as the youngest of Jesse's sons. He is the runt of the litter. All the other brothers have already grown, matured. They are going to make something of themselves. Jesse just overlooks David. When Samuel comes and says he's going to anoint one of his sons to be the king, the fact that David isn't there doesn't even cross Jesse's mind. It's as if David doesn't exist. You talk about a justification for daddy issues. That's how a psychologist would approach it. But David doesn't have daddy issues because David's daddy is God the rock, and God the rock is going to sustain him. He's rejected by his family. His brothers look down on him when he shows up, when Jesse sends him to take uh, food to his brothers who are in the battle with the Philistines and Goliath is coming out with his daily challenge. When David shows up, they just sort of ridicule and, and they um, demean him. They have no respect for him. He's young. He can't come out here and fight. He's not old enough, big enough, strong enough. And so he's rejected by his family. He's rejected later by Saul, who's constantly trying to kill him. He's rejected by his wife, Michal, who is Saul's daughter. as She ridicules him as well. But through all of this, God's grace is sufficient. And David becomes a tremendous example of a believer who is sustained by the power of God and sustained by the promises of God. And it is his dependence upon God's sufficient grace that speaks to us so much in the Psalms. So there's another great example. And then I'm going to finish up with one that is kind of a strange example, and that's Hosea. 
Hosea is the prophet that you don't understand, along with Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel. Every time you read through your Bible, you just read that and you go, I don't understand this because my view of God, God would not tell me to go marry a prostitute. And that's what God did. He said, I've called you to the ministry. Now I want you to go marry a prostitute. And Hosea, this is, she's immoral. She's unclean. God is going to use his family as an object lesson to teach Israel about God's grace and his faithfulness on the one hand and their unfaithfulness on the other hand. So be thankful that we don't live in the era of Israel, the age of Israel, that you're not an Ezekiel or a Hosea. Ezekiel's called to go out and to build a little wall and lie down on one side for a while and then lie down on the other side for a while to depict God's judgment provision in the way uh, Jerusalem is going to be under siege and with Hosea he marries a an unfaithful woman and she is going to uh, be unfaithful to him he has two children by uh, by her and all of this is designed simply to teach that God can sustain him even in that kind of a marriage. A lot of people don't like to hear that. My marriage is rotten. I've got all kinds of problems. But God can still sustain you. Now, I believe there are times when uh, marriages legitimately end because of physical abuse and because of some other legitimate reasons that are laid out in Scripture. But in... But even in those cases, there are people who hang in there and God changes things. I think each person has to make their own decision. But in the case of Hosea, we see an example of God sustaining grace. And in Hosea 1-2, the Lord began to speak by Hosea and said, Go take yourself a wife of harlotry and children of harlotry, for the land has committed great harlotry by departing from the Lord. So that's the starting point. God's going to be sufficient in his grace to sustain Hosea. Now, Hosea may have had great visions. I'm going to have a great wife. She's going to be able to cook well and take care of the house. We're going to have eight or nine kids, and they're all going to grow up and serve the Lord. And we are just going to be a perfect example of a godly family to the rest of the country. And then God shows up and says, I've got a different plan. You're going to marry a wife of harlotry, and you're going to have children of harlotry. And you, the only example you're going to be is an example of the, of the unbelief and unfaithfulness of Israel to me. But that's God's will, and God's going to sustain it. We don't know what God's going to take us, and sometimes it's not where we want to go. We have our vision of the way we want things to be, and God says... I've got a different plan. My plan will bring glory to me. Your plan won't. Let's go to my plan. And we have to be flexible and serve the Lord and trust in him and his grace is sufficient for us. So let's close in prayer. Next time I'll come back and we'll look at the sufficiency of God's grace in the life of the Apostle Paul and then wrap up with the ultimate example, which is the sufficiency of God's grace in the life of Jesus Christ. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things and be reminded that we are to trust in you. These 
same heroes that I have mentioned, heroes that trusted in your sufficient grace, who received your sufficient grace, are men who are listed in Hebrews 11 as great men of faith who trusted in you and were tremendous examples for the ages of what it means to trust in you. That's the issue in the Christian life. We're not trusting in you plus psychology. We're not trusting in you plus some other gimmick or technique or some other tool. We're trusting in you and putting our lives in your hands because we are here to serve you and to glorify you. And so, Father, we pray that you would strengthen us, help us to understand what this means, and help us as we are weak in the flesh, but we are strong when we depend on you. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.